If you will, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 or your cell phone or whatever you use. Uh, just go ahead and take care of that for us. Turn to Romans chapter 9. All right, let me just say this. Some of you are probably asking, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> if you could help us tidy up a little bit as you leave, there'll be some trash cans at the doors as you go out. So please help us with that. We sure would appreciate it. And uh, thank you for participating in communion this morning. We think it was, uh, we always wanted it to be a special time, not one of those times that we attach it to something, but something that is very meaningful. And I hope it was a time for you. Well, we're going to continue our series, Royal Invitation, and it is a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. We began this uh, several years ago where we took episodes of, of the year and, and tried to make our way through, and we're continuing now. We're in our third section of this, and today we're looking at the passion of salvation. If you have one of the handouts when you came in this morning, I want you to look at the introduction. If salvation is the greatest thing to ever happen to a believer in Christ— then why doesn't that believer want to tell others about the greatest thing to have ever happened to them? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, think about it. What's the greatest news you've ever received in your life? Maybe it was the, the birth of a child, the, even more, the birth of a grandchild. You know how special they are or, or, or whatever it may be. How many of you just couldn't wait to tell someone or, or maybe when uh, you became engaged to someone or, or maybe when you celebrated a big event in your life? Why is it that all those things we can talk about and freely talk about, but yet when it comes to the greatest thing to ever take place in our lives, we don't tend to share that. Have you ever thought about that? Better yet, it should greatly grieve the believer, those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, when they witness others who have not experienced the salvation they have experienced. Where is the passion to share our great salvation? Now, we're going to be talking about something this morning as we make our way into chapter 9 of Romans. The thing that we need to be aware of is chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, we made our way all the way to chapter 9, but when we get into 9, 10, and 11, it's almost like Paul just kind of turns the conversation. And that's exactly what he's about to do. And so as we make our way there, I think you'll find it that, that he, Paul is definitely riding a high. Think about Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 37. Look at, look at where he's coming from. We discussed this last week. He says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor three things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is... In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Think about what he's doing there. He, he's really just kind of building in the thought of the fact that nothing can separate him from his God. The one to, who, who made the ultimate sacrifice on his behalf. The very thing that we just uh, looked at uh, through the lens of communion. And all of a sudden he says, there's nothing greater. And then we come to chapter 9. And it seems that Paul goes from the high moment of thinking to the low moment of thinking when he says in verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Something has definitely changed for the apostle. 
He's gone from one of those moments where he's just caught up in what Christ has done on his behalf and the provision that God has given through Christ. And, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my goodness, he, he's in ter- almost in torment as to something that has happened. Look at the context there on your outline. The Apostle Paul, as I said, changes the conversation of the letter to explaining Israel's rejection of God's Son and how the church will be his choice to receive his privileges and to reveal him to the nations. And that's what you'll find in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So as we make our way there, I want you to understand this. The Bible says that God chose the nation of Israel to be a nation that would be set apart from every other nation in the world to bear his name and to make him known. How did they do? They didn't do so well. Matter of fact, most of the time in their history, they had their eyes off of God instead of on God. They had him, they, they, they displaced him. The, many times, uh, even God himself said they committed adultery by, 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 by worshiping pagan gods. And so we see that there's this long, tragic history that leads all the way up to when the Messiah comes, when Jesus shows up. And guess what? They still get it wrong. And yet he's clearly seen all through the Old Testament. So God now... And by the way, it's not that God is like, well, I guess I couldn't count on them. I guess I'll move on to plan B. That's not the way God thinks. Our God knows it all. Our God sees the whole plan. Our God saw it from the beginning. He'll see it through to the end. He knows how all this is going to end. And so, by the way, when we move our way from the Old old Covenant, the Old Testament to the New Covenant, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was setting it all up. And something is about to happen. The church is going to come to the forefront. It will take on the responsibilities that the nation of Israel, the Jews, were supposed to have. And he will make himself known through the church. And of course, I think many of us know the history of that. So look on your outline. The privileges of God's people. We're going to start with the nation of Israel, and then we're going to go to the church. We'll come back and fill those blanks uh, to your, to your, I guess, to your right there uh, a little bit later. But right now, I want us to look at the nation of Israel. I want us to see what it meant for God to set them apart. And Paul tells us clearly what it looks like. If you read the last part of verse 3 of chapter 9, he says, My brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Paul is basically saying here, these were my people. These were the people in which God brought me forth in. Uh, If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he, he was a great Jew. He really was. I mean, if anyone were to sit there and say, okay, tell me what a good Jew looks like. Paul would have been that person. I mean, he had all the credentials. He taught the Jewish people. He, he had it all. And then something happened on the road to Damascus. You know the story. All of a sudden, he came in contact with the resurrected Lord, and everything in his life changed. Now, he's moved on. He's accepted the Christ, the Messiah. He's accepted Jesus Christ, and he believes in that sacrificial gift that he's given us. And, but there's still his countrymen. There's still this rich history back here that appears to be just moved to the side. And Paul was I mean, he's grieved over this. He's burdened by this. Look at how he describes God's people. 
First of all, there's a special name. They were known as the Israelites. Look at Romans 9. Look at verse 4. He says, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who were Israelites. Israelites. The very name means ones, one who rules with God. That's what the name literally means. It comes from the name of Israel. Israel. So all of a sudden you have Jacob here. You remember Jacob? You, you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel. He will be the one that the covenant will come through. And you know from there we have the 12 tribes of Israel. We see the rich history, but he gave them. It's that name Israel. So when he gave that name to, to Jacob, he not only gave that name to Jacob, he gave that name to these people who would be set apart. Okay? And so that's what you're reading or seeing here. And then we see not only a special name, but a sincere relationship. Look at the word he uses there, the word adoption. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, again, he says, To whom pertain the adoption? The adoption. The people of the nation of Israel were the adopted family of God. I want you to think about it. God is there, and we, we have the creation account. We have the flood account. We have all these things. Man falls into ruin through sin. I mean, it continues on, and the world's becoming populated, and then Abraham shows up. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of the Israelites, all of them knew that. And so when they look back at, at Abraham, they knew he, he was where it started. That's where the covenant became evident. And all of a sudden, God says, your seed, the people that come from you, they will be my people. I'm going to adopt them. They're going to be set apart. I have special plans for them. And that's what you have here. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says, you are the children of the Lord, your God. It referred to those who believed and had a faith in God. Now, let me tell you something about the Jewish people. This is kind of interesting when you think about it, but here, here's one thing that we need to understand. It does appear that by the time you get to, to the New Testament, the New Covenant, that Paul is the leader of this whole train of thought, and, and it comes, by, I'm convinced, by way of the Holy Spirit. But basically what God is about to do, he's about to put the nation of Israel on the shelf. If you were to say, okay, what is it, what's, it, what's really happening here? He's literally putting them on the shelf. Now, does that mean God's done with them? No, the Bible's very clear that at the end times, you know what's going to happen? They're going to be removed from the shelf and put back center stage because there's still some promises that he made to these people that have not been fulfilled yet. There's still something out there that God has special for these people and they will take center stage. We're not really sure what happens to the church. Many people believe the rapture is going to happen. I'm, I'm counting on that. And the rapture is going to happen. It's going to remove the church out. And then all of a sudden, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, the Jew will become center stage. God, it will be evangelistic appeals everywhere. Revival will come to the nation of Israel. And God will put them center stage once again. We know that's going to happen. But in the meantime, they've been put on the shelf. And we know, based on what we're getting ready to read, the church will be the tool that God will receive his glory, and the church will be given a responsibility to make him known. And that's what we're finding here. That's, that's exactly what's happened. So the, the Israelite, the Jew, they have a special name. They have a sincere relationship. Thirdly, they have a spectacular appearance. I want you to think about this. 
Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's look at how he dealt with the Jews, Jewish people, the, the Israelites. First of all, there's this idea of the glory. The glory. Do you know how the glory showed up? Well, remember the story of the Israelites crossing the wilderness? Do you remember that story? You had a pillar of fire by night and a bright cloud by day that led them. You know what that was? The presence of God. The presence of God. The glory of God was shown before them. Now think about that. That's pretty special. That was the glory that represented God that was, he was, was present with the nation of Israel. Later, when they built the tabernacle, that same cloud would fill the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. How many of you know that part of the story? And then they would build the temple and the, that same would move into the temple. And we have this whole idea of that glory. Some people call it the Shekinah glory. God's glory, listen, was with, was with Israel saying, and God saying this, I have put my presence with these people. Would you say that's pretty special? That's definitely a special place to be. I mean, think about it. What, what comes with that? Well, the, the whole idea that God somehow, when he looked across the masses, he looked at time, he said, okay, here's Abraham. I will make a covenant with Abraham that his seed, his people will become my people. They will be set apart. I have great plans for them. I'm going to receive glory through their name and they're going to make me known. They didn't do so well. They will in the future. But they didn't do so well. But he still had a, that special relationship with them. Next, we see the privileges of God's people, the nation of Israel, a stock of agreements. And it's that whole idea of covenants. He, he mentions this. Paul's talking about the covenants. You know what Paul's doing with this list? He's basically saying these people, my people, my countrymen, they had it all. They had it all. And they gave it away. How many of you ever met someone who appeared to have it all and they just cashed it in for something cheaper or real cheap? You ever seen that? That's kind of what was going on with, it, with God's people. I mean, they had it all. And Paul was saying it. He said, these people had it all. The covenants were the agreements that God had made. He made an agreement with Abraham. He said, your seed will be my people. He, he, he reconfirmed it with Isaac, his son, and then his grandson, Jacob. But then Moses comes along and he has another special agreement with his people. He says, this is my law. Very clear about that. And then he comes a little bit later and here's David upon this throne. This throne, this, this tells us he's not done with them yet. From this throne shall sit the Messiah. All this is what these people had. Next, they had a shield of commandments or, or commands and we call it the law. Look at Romans 9. It says the giving of the law. They had the law. God spoke to them special, in a special way through Moses. I mean, he had it all. I mean, think about it. Has, has God spoke to other people? We have no account of that. But God spoke to who? Spoke to Moses. Spoke to the nation of Israel. What a privilege. What a privilege. God's law, listen to this was a special message to his people. It outlined how they could be blessed and also protected. But you know what we do with God's law many times? We look at God's law and we, we learn all these things we can't do. How many of you, when you were a teenager, thought, God, you're a killjoy. 
You, you, I mean, everything that we think will bring pleasure and fulfillment and all this, you're saying, it, it, nope, 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 nope. But you know what God meant when he sent his law? He sent, here's what he was saying. If you want me to be in special relationship with you and bless you, here's what you've got to do. Now think about that. The one who created it all, the one that put it all in motion, he says, you want to be blessed by me? Here's a picture of what it looks like. You do these things. I'll bless you. Not only that, we know. Did you know that the commands of God, every one of them, when you look at it, are there, as I've said so many times, to provide for us and to protect us? Look at every command ever given by God. Two things, to provide for us and to protect us. God was looking out for us through the law. And he was his people and he, he was putting it out there. God's law meant he would be a protection to his people. He would provide for his people. And then here's another statement. The privileges of God's people, a standard of sacrifice. And it's the whole idea of service. In Romans 9 verse 4, the next part says the service of God. If you were to look in the New International Version, it would say the temple worship. It, it kind of defines what, what the writer was trying to say. The Jews, think about this, had the privilege to lead the world in worshiping the one true God. Have you ever thought of it that way? They had the privilege to lead the world in worshiping the one true God. How well did they do? Not too well. But they were given that. With this privilege came responsibility to get the word out concerning God. In Ezekiel chapter 33, I want you to see it here on the screen. This, these are words that, that I believe were meant for the nation of Israel, but they can also speak to us here today who, who, who are now God's people. L listen to what it says. But if the watchman sees the sword coming, you know what the watchman is? If you go back to those times, you would see a wall built around most cities to protect it. On that wall, they would place a watchman. The watchman would look around for any threat that would come to that city. And that's the picture that you have here. It says, but if the watchman sees the sword coming, war, there's a threat, and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But think of this. His blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now, who's being held responsible? The one who should have sounded the warning. That's who's responsible. Put it in the context of what we're talking about here. Put it in the context of what the prophet was trying to say. He was basically saying this. You are the people of God. You've been set apart. You've been marked as a people who will go and warn the world of the judgment of the coming of, of, the God, of God, the true God. Not only that, you're there to make him known, to warn them. Then it says, verse 7, so you, son of man... I have made you a watchman from the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, oh, wicked man, you shall surely die. Now, when he's talking about dying here, I mean, we're all destined to die unless the Lord comes back. But what he's talking about here is a, a, a physical, uh, basically being uh, dying eternally. 
and away from the presence of God in condemnation. That's what he's talking about here. And then he says this, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity. I mean, it's what's due him because he, he, the warning wasn't there. What's due him, he's going to die of that judgment. But his blood will what? I'll require of you. You look at Israel and you say, boy, y'all really blew it, didn't you? And Paul's grieved by this. Well, basically what Paul was doing, he is saying, hey, these were the people who were supposed to be set apart by God. These are the people God chose to make himself known to the world. And look at all that they had. And they failed in so many different ways. Let me ask you a question. Could, could some of this be said of the church and its failure? Yeah. Especially this part right here. It goes back to the, 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 the greatest thing that ever happened to us. What's the greatest thing that ever happened to you? That your sins were forgiven. That your sins were forgiven. That the sacrifice of Jesus Christ took care of the guilt and the shame and the judgment and the wrath of God on your behalf. Took care of it. Greatest thing that ever happened to you. It's not only the greatest thing that ever happened to us. It's also the thing that we're told to proclaim We've been told to go out into the world and proclaim that news and to tell them, listen, you need to hear us. There's a warning. Greatest thing that ever happened to me. Let me tell you what it is. But here's the warning to it too. There's a judgment that is coming. The Bible says there's appointed unto man once to die and then what? The judgment. We've got some strong words going on here. The privileges of God's people. We're talking about Israel now. A story of blessings. It's the whole idea of promises. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, the promises, the Israelites were given, listen, the promise of a Savior, the promise of an inheritance, the promises of God's Word. All these things were given to them. The only reason we have it today is because it was given to them. And yet they totally missed it. Totally missed it. How about this? The privilege of God's people is the session of patriarchs. The fathers. He says that. He says in verse 5, of whom are the fathers? He's, what Paul's referring to here, look back at the rich history that we have. Go back and look at that, what they did. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us a little bit about it. it talks about what the fathers overcame, the, 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 what the faith of the fathers looked like. And they say, hey, we have examples back here. Some great stories about what God did through his people. The Israelites had a heritage of God interacting in their history and a faithful and faithful fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph of the Old Testament, Moses, Joshua, Nehemiah, the list goes on. How about this? The privileges of God's people, the nation of Israel, a sacrifice of the Messiah. Christ literally means Messiah, the anointed one. He says in verse 9, excuse me, verse 5, and from according to the flesh, Christ came. You know what he's basically saying? Through the lineage, through the lineage of the Jews, the Israelites, who shows up? Jesus. Who is he? Messiah. The one they've been waiting on. The, the one that the scholars, when they look into the Old Testament, the ones that the scholars, he's going to come through the lineage. But then he shows up, and even the scholars miss it. <laughs> no one sees it. 
You know why? Because they were bent up too much in their traditions. They, listen, they created a savior in their own image. They did. And when Jesus shows up and doesn't match what they created, they wrote him off. You may say, well, is that relevant today? Oh, definitely. Everyone out there wants to live on their own terms. And therefore, here's what they do. They create a God that they can, can pretend like they serve in such a way that they can live as they want to. And it's easy for them. And that's what's going on here. Even the nation of Israel, God's people, the ones that were chosen, the ones that were pulled out. The story of Jesus' life and his death was illustrated all through the Old Testament. How many of you ever seen movie trailers? You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about the trailer that's there when they do makeup and all. I'm talking about what they send out ahead of the movie. You ever seen those? I mean, some of them, I think they tell too much almost, don't you? It's like, well, just, I guess I don't need to see the movie now. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But, but do you know what the Old Testament was? Some of you may say, uh, well, excuse this, but this is the way I see it, okay? It was like a movie trailer. It was. Pointed out all the obvious stuff. All the things that this thing would cover. All the things that would go into the movie itself when the movie itself showed up. Do you realize that the Old Testament was a movie trailer for the Messiah when he showed up? We saw bits and pieces of the story. We saw it. And then when he showed up, you know what's amazing about him showing up the first time? The first time it's back there in the Old Testament. How many of you have looked at the Old Testament, looked at the prophecies and thought, how did they miss this? You know why? They created the Messiah in their own image. And we all, if we're not careful, could do the same thing. And so we see so many different things happening here. Now, now let's transition this over to the church. The privileges of God's people. Now that Israel, let me just say this. I don't mean any disrespect other than this is what it appears to be saying in Romans 9, 10, 11. Has been put on the shelf. Set apart. Set apart. They've been no notified as God's people. Put on the shelf. Now, let me just tell you this. They haven't just been thrown out. They've just been put on the shelf. They'll show up again. They'll take center stage once again in human history. But right now, they're on the shelf. Guess who he, re re who he raises up next? The church. The church will be what he intended the nation of Israel to be. And all of a sudden, we've got something else happening. So a special name, you see the Israelites. What name are we given? Christian. Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the name uh, Christian can be very misconstrued. How many of you agree with that? So many people are out there saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. And, 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 doesn't look like it. <laughs> Let me show you what's so amazing about the name. Well, first of all, look at Acts 11 here. It says, and when he, speaking of Barnabas, found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. Okay, so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called what? Christians in Antioch. So when we go around and we say we're Christians, it is an appropriate title. Do you know what it literally means? Follower of Christ. A little Christ is literally what it means. Follower of Christ. But we throw the name around flippantly in our, where we live today and how we live today. And I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Because mama was a Christian. Grandma was a Christian. Everybody was a Christian. Hey, I was baptized. I'm a Christian. I'm a member of this church. I'm a Christian. But what does it mean? 
follower of Jesus Christ, little Christ. And so we see there is something about the name. Next, there's a sincere relationship. Of course, we have the description of Israel being adopted. There are places where we're adopted, but we're grafted in. But really, our name is child of God. We've been called a child of God. And so here's what it says in Romans 8, 13. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, what? Abba, Father. You know what that literally means? The intimacy that can be found in this relationship. It literally means daddy. Daddy. But so many times, how do we refer? And listen, I know all about respect. I know the Lord's Prayer. I know the uh, Father, you know. And, and, but listen, it, it actually is more than that. It goes to the intimacy of the little nickname of daddy. That's intimate. That's intimate. I walked into the room a while ago, and the grandkids were in here. That's always fun to get started in the morning with the grandkids. And the little, uh, the three-year-old comes running, Granddaddy, you know, and he hugs me. And I, man, I, ooh, I love that, you know. Matter of fact, I like that as much as I'm doing right now. I'll be just to be honest with you. But but um, but it is. It's just something about that and that intimacy. And and he just held on. I don't know what caused him to hold on. I guess they're treating him bad at home. I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> He just held on with all his might. I was like, bless your heart. What's going on, boy? But anyway, the privilege of God's people, we see Israel, but also we see the church, a spectacular appearance. You see, they had the glory. They had the cloud. They had the holy of holies with the presence of God there. But you know what we have? We have something called the Holy Spirit. That same presence, listen, the same presence that led them out of Egypt into the wilderness that sat in the Holy of Holies, guess what? This will blow your mind, now resides in us. In us. That should blow your mind. The Bible says in Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins. And guess what? And when that happens, you're going to receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift, listen, of the presence of God coming to reside in you. To take up habitation. To dwell. That should blow your mind. That's why everything should change once you give your heart to the Lord. Because he's there. He's there. His presence is there. How about this? A stock of agreements. Of course, in the Old Testament, when it comes to Israel, there's the idea of covenants. But now we have this whole idea of salvation. Salvation is the covenant, the ultimate of covenants. And it's that whole idea. If you look here in Acts chapter 4, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only way the the covenant of salvation comes to you is by way of God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's the only way. I hear all these people out there saying, well, there's got to be more than one way. The Bible says there's only one way. You may say, boy, you're narrow-minded. You're intolerant. You're all these things. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm not creating God in my own image over here, y'all. I'm, I'm taking him for what he's told us. I'm taking his word. I'm looking at it through the image he's portrayed before us. Not the image I'm out here trying to create. And try to, I don't know what else to say. 
other than this is what it says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, for God did not appoint us to wrath. How many of you are grateful for that? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 13, in Christ you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's pretty good when you start talking about salvation, eternity with Jesus Christ, and something seals the deal. How many of you like that? That's the language we have here. Next, the shield of commands. We see the law over here with Israel. But there's something that Paul even represents, uh, refers to in this, in this letter. The church, it's the idea of being justified. We're justified. The law couldn't bring the salvation. You get that, right? Law couldn't do it. But there was one that was needed to live it perfectly. His name was Jesus Christ. He lived it perfectly in order that we may be justified. The word justified means made acceptable. The word justified means, it literally means the whole idea that now you're right before God. The law, you could never get there with it. You know why? Because every one of you failed it. I've seen you. You failed it. I'm joking, by the way. I don't know some of you. Anyway, you failed it. The only reason I know you failed it is because the Bible says, for all sin comes short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So you know what? That's good enough for me. You failed it. <laughs> but he justified us. He made us acceptable. That's a whole new meaning. It says, and by him, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified. How? By the law of Moses. Wasn't going to happen that way. Next, we see a standard of sacrifice. We talked about service as it related to Israel, but now we're talking about the whole idea of worship. And we see this clearly in Acts chapter 24. It says, but this I confess to you that according to the way, that's another name they gave the Christians, according to the way which they call a set. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and the prophets. What's being said here is being this. Paul is basically giving his testimony. He's saying, you know something? What the law and the prophets were doing is they were revealing the Messiah. Everything they said over here, I can worship, I can believe, I can see because he showed up and he sealed the deal. And therefore, I worship him. That's what we're talking about here. Next, we see the privilege of God's people. We see Israel with the promises. We see a story of blessing the church with an inheritance. There's several times in Scripture where we're told that as a result of knowing Christ, we have an inheritance. How many of you like the idea of inheritance? I was talking to someone not long ago, and they were talking about the, a great inheritance they received. And I'm sitting there, and I said, really? I haven't got one of those. And not, you know, I'm sitting there, like, inheritance. Well, yeah. I said, boy, my parents did a whole lot better than I thought they did in life. And uh, I said, well, good for you. I hate you, but good for you. Y'all, that means nothing, really, in comparison to what he's talking about. He's talking about something that is eternal. He's talking about something that is, has been purchased. Listen, he's talking about something that has been purchased and then given to us. 
Isn't that pretty sweet? Purchased and then given to us. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. And then it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away and is reserved for you where? In heaven. Still out there. You say, well, I've never received any inheritance. You got one coming if you know Jesus. And it's just true. That's what the Bible says. Next, we see a succession of patriarchs. It's talking about the fathers. Look over at where it relates to the church. We see a, a, a heritage. Y'all, you know what's amazing about our heritage as it relates to who Jesus is and what the Bible's trying to say? We have the same heritage as, as the Jew does. We really do. Is Abraham a big deal to you? Should be. Is David? All those people better? Should be. Old Testament tells us about our, our inheritance. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. That's what the writer of Hebrews was trying to say. He was trying to say, hey, look at your rich heritage here. Look at what these people overcame. Look at the faith that they have. Look at how this plays out. Next, we have our sacrifice of the Messiah. The is Israel was looking for the Christ. We have a Savior. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.10, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior... Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through where? Through what? The gospel. The gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Next, we see the privileges of God's people, Israel and the But now we see the passion of God's person. i got to hurry with this. Now, of course, when we talk about the passion of the person, we're talking about the writer of Romans. And, of course, it's Paul. And Paul goes from a shouting heart. You remember in the verse uh, chapter 8 when he's up there, he's just getting so excited. He just starts naming all the different things that came with the salvation. Nothing can separate from the love of God. And then all of a sudden everything just kind of stops. And he says this. Nine, uh, he has a sorrowful heart. Chapter 9, verse 1. I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Why? Because the Jew, Paul's countrymen, rejected Christ. They missed what God had for him. Notice Paul's, listen to this, this is so important. If you hear anything today, hear this. Notice that Paul's passion did not lead him to hatred. Let, let me tell you who his biggest persecutors were. They didn't kill him, but they, the biggest persecutors Paul had were Jews when he came on the scene. Everywhere he went, they sought to undo all the seed that he had threw out there. Everywhere he went to plant churches, there was that contention of Jews who would come in and, and try to wreak havoc with the message and change the gospel. And, and Paul was basically saying he has a passion. It did not lead him to hatred, but his passion led him to compassion. I don't know about you, but there's things that are going on in the world. There's images out there. There's things I see, happen to see on the TV or whatever. And I'll be honest with you. My first inclination when I see these things is I, 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 there's a hatred. There's a disgust. There's something in there that's it's like, what's going on? Have we been there? But, you know, I'm not called 
to judge what is disgusting and what's not. Did you know that my own sin was disgusting to a holy son? <laughs> Did you know that? Did you know that disgusting and disgusting is still what? Disgusting. And there's things I see out there that just turn me. I mean, I mean, it's just hard to deal with. I'm, I'm just being, I'm being completely honest with you. But God is beginning to do something in my personal heart that is changing my passion for wanting people to know Jesus into compassion for those things that I used to deem as disgusting more than my disgust. And he's basically showing me now it's all the same thing. You need to have compassion. You receive, you receive compassion, you need to have compassion. And that's tough. It's tough sometimes, isn't it? And that's what we're seeing here. We're, we're seeing Paul's heart. I mean, these were the people who were coming after him, trying to undo everything he tried to do. Next, we go his, from his sorrowful heart to a sacrificial heart. Romans chapter 9, verse 3. This is an amazing verse. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brother, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He's saying these people, my people, my people, they're persecuting me. They're trying to turn everything that I do into something else. They're misrepresenting me. They're even trying to get me killed. But you know something? If they will just get it, if they will understand that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that we've been praying for, longing for, couldn't wait for, if they could just come to know him, I'm willing to take on hell for that. That's what the word accursed means. It means anathema. It means something bent towards destruction. And what he's talking about there is he's saying this. I'm willing to go to hell that a great revival could take place among my people that they would know Christ the way I know him. How many of you say, man, that is a big deal. Big deal. Here's the application. Do you have compassion for those who are lost? Or do you sit there and judge? Or do you sit there and say, you know something? You know something? I, I don't know that can be forgiven. Mine, I think you did a good job. I'm not sure yours can be forgiven. It can all be forgiven. And we need to learn to have compassion for those where it just gets us. <laughs> for those where it's just so hard we got to have compassion. And, and so here, here's the question. If yes, if you have compassion, where does that compassion lead you? Does it lead you to the emptiness of a soul that's trying everything in, in, their, in this, that this world has to fill that vacancy? Y'all, that's a lot of what, what we're seeing out there. There's an empty soul, and they're trying anything, and I mean anything, to fill that void. And when you look closely at the pictures, you see the holes. You see the sadness. You see the lostness. It's right there. But instead, we look at it, and I, I've been there. We look at it with disgust, and we turn our head. Do we have compassion? And then secondly, is the tragedy of Israel your own tragedy? I've sat here this morning and I've done everything in my power to show you Jesus. 
to show you what the church now has, to show you that you can be a part of the church through Jesus Christ's sacrifice. I've done everything in my power to, to make that as simple as I know how and to say, hey, Israel, they missed it, totally missed it. But the church is now on the scene and we're introducing him to you. Don't let their tragedy be your tragedy. It's right there. You can see it. It's clear. Where are you? I'm going to ask ushers to come forward if they will. Father, we just come to you right now. We just, Lord, I, I don't know where everybody is this morning. But Lord, I know that you have a desire to save those who are lost. I know you have a desire to fill the void of the lostness that's in this world. And Father, I know that you've called us to make you known, to, 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 to lift you up in such a way that you can receive glory from the nations. Father, we as a church, you know our heart. We love to, to go out from among us and, and go to places called Zambia and Nepal and different places and Guatemala. And, but Father, help us to realize that the lostness is all around us. It's in the streets that we live. It's in the city in which we live. Lord, give us a compassion. And most of all, give us a passion to reach those who don't know you. Father, I pray for this offering and pray that you'll use as we continue to, to make you known. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> okay.